Welcome to the Staying Ageless Podcast, a show that will equip you with the major keys to achieve extraordinary longevity. This is your girl, Associate E, also known as Raw Girl. I'm a certified nutrition specialist and behavioral coach, and today on the show we'll be chatting about the state of the black diet. To get this longevity party started, I'm going to share a recap of my clubhouse talk where myself and a group of panelists discuss the history of the black diet in America, where we are now, and how we can use diet to address some of the major health disparities in the black community moving forward. I am so grateful to have each and every one of you tuning into the show from all over the world. Shout out to listeners in Sweden, Australia, South Africa, Denmark, France, Mexico, Canada, and the USA. I appreciate you all. If today's show inspires you, I'm inviting you to go ahead and subscribe and please rate the show on Apple Podcasts and write a review. It means the world to me to get feedback, so any reviews are much appreciated. Today on the show, I'm excited to share this Clubhouse talk with you in case you missed it. The panelists include myself, Chasita Giles, Dr. Milton Mills, Dr. Columbus Batiste, and Dr. Eric Walsh. Chasita Giles is an awesome journalist whose work has been published in the New York Times, LA Times, USA Today, Daily Beast, NPR, and more. Dr. Milton Mills is a critical care physician at Inova Fairfax Hospital, member of the Board of Directors of Plant-Based Prevention of Disease, former Associate Director of Preventative Medicine and National Advisory Board member for the Physicians Committee for Responsible Medicine, and a lecturer at community venues throughout the United States. Dr. Columbus Batiste is a board-certified interventional cardiologist and assistant clinical professor at the University of California Riverside School of Medicine. Dr. Batiste co-founded the Slave Food Project as a medium to educate communities at risk for health disparities about the power of plant-based nutrition and building community resilience. Dr. Eric Walsh is a public health specialist physician, and pastor, who serves as a medical director for Urgent Care Services. Dr. Walsh has a double doctorate in medicine and public health and is also co-founder of the Slave Fruit Project. I am super excited to announce the launch of the new destination I created for online programs called Staying Ageless University. At Staying Ageless University, we create epic content to teach you about holistic wellness, and transformational healing programs to help you achieve extraordinary longevity. We believe that learning is an essential component of healing and creating lasting change, and every one of our programs are created from protocols that I have tried and tested on clients who have achieved optimal wellness by following them. Our signature programs include Staying Ageless 30 Plus, which is designed to help women 30 plus interested in staying fly till you're 99 or close to it, create lasting healthy rituals, and the all-new Raw Girls Hormonal Balancing Academy for women suffering with fibroids, PCOS, endometriosis, cysts, or menopausal symptoms if you're ready to use holistic means to take control of your hormones and get your life back. We also have two new programs that are amazing for New Year's Clean Starts, Detox Your Life, which includes 30-day plant-based detox, either raw or vegan, and candida and parasites be gone for those who are ready to kick candida overgrowth or parasites to the curb for good. Enrollment is now open for three of our programs and we officially launched January 1st, 2021. You can learn more about us and our program offerings at stayingagelessuniversity.com. Hope to see you in class. When I lived in LA, I was at the beach 
all of the time. <laughs> the beach was my happy place. After going to the beach, I would always stop by this amazing raw food restaurant. They had the most delicious food, burritos, cinnamon rolls. I was obsessed. Fast forward to this year when I wanted to give myself a jump start on raw, I discovered that this amazing restaurant that I used to frequent had transitioned to nationwide delivery of fully prepared raw meals. It's called Raw Revolution, and for 20 years, they've been serving the finest and most vibrant living foods meals. They offer a raw box, which includes two fresh pressed juices, four gourmet entrees, four generous sides, and two delicious low glycemic desserts. The raw box is designed to provide one person with about four to five days of lunches and dinners. I also love that the menu changes each week, so there's always lots of variety. I get a lot of inquiries from listeners and clients alike who want to go raw and feel like it's not sustainable time-wise. If this is you, this is an amazing solution to get your raw jumpstart. Head on over to rawvolution.com and use the code RAWGIRL to receive a discount on your first purchase. So let's start. I really want to start this conversation. I think when we're talking about diet and black Americans, we have to start with slavery, especially we're talking about, you know, we're talking about America. So I want to start with, can we start with you, Dr. Walsh? I feel like you and Dr. Batiste, I would really like to hear you guys start with, I mean, what is slave food in the literal sense and kind of start us off with um, that history? Well, thanks for having me on. Um, You know, one thing we talk about in the Slave Food Project is the fact that uh, nutrition was really weaponized against our people. Um, when I was in Ghana and was able to go to the, um, the slave castles, um, that's one of the things that they explained to me, how food was used that way. And it was used that way even on the, in the Middle Passage and, of course, on the plantation. And black Americans um, under slavery were given the cuts of, of the pig that the master wouldn't eat. And what is we now call soul food was actually once slave food. Um, and, uh, you know, so they did that to maximize profit. And we believe that the way that food is designed to be addictive today, made from um, genetically modified organisms and uh, made in such a way uh, that it maximizes profits for people today. And, of course, weakens us just like that food weakened us um, is how slave food actually represents itself in the modern times. Well, that's deep. Um, Dr. Batiste, you want to add to that? Hey, yes. Thanks for uh, for having me as well. And it's hard to, my talks or discussion is very synergistic with what Eric just mentioned. And so just to add to it, just to emphasize it, it really was the refuse. It was thrown out. And so I remember as a kid growing up, and, and don't shoot me for this, but I remember we had a number of dogs. And one of the things that we do in addition to buying dog food is we would cast off the things that were left on our plates things that were thrown out that we didn't want anymore is what we would throw into their their dog pens and they went these big big dogs would eat it up right and it wasn't that they couldn't find some level of nutrition for uh from it but it wasn't something that was ideal and so that's what slave food was it was a refuse it was cast off it was the things that were unwanted that we had to figure out somehow some way to make lemons out of lemons eliminate our lemons and and that's truly what it was and it and it has this 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 trajectory that we've held on to it with a sense of of glory and reminiscence of of culture and saying that's who we are and it is in part who we are but that's not all of who we are and that's the key Mm. dr mills you any thoughts on this actually i do 
because um, in a, as as uh, both uh, Columbus and Eric have, have already pointed out, um, the slaves were fed, were given the literal garbage of of the plantation, and not only were you know was this the you know excrement filled entrails and you know the feet which have been walking through excrement and the gristly tails and, and ears and and so forth, but the point of giving them that food was in itself an act of denigration. Mm. Um, it was saying, you are not worthy of anything other than receiving this garbage. And I don't think it's possible to continue eating that food without still internalizing that mm. uh, self-deprecation and realizing that we are at some level looking at ourselves as being garbage eaters. And the the other point that I want to bring in real quick, because I want to uh, take up some time, is that the we all know now, uh, uh, and Columbus and, and Eric point out in their Slave Food series, that how detrimental uh, this this these items are to our long-term health. They create disease. And what people need to understand is that the disease was part of the point. Because by keeping slaves sick, um, you kept them from running off. You kept them from running away from sick um, uh, uh, relatives. And also, once their usefulness usefulness was used up, um, they would die quicker. And you're no longer putting money into an unprofitable uh, piece of property. So, yeah, there, there are many, many levels to, to the evils involved here. Well, it's deep. Dr. Walsh, where does it go from? So it starts. So we know that it started with these with slave food. It later turns into soul food. Where does in the history of um, food and American, all that stuff, where does redlining come into play? Like when does do you know when that came into existence and how that that then led to the restricted access to good quality food? Well, that, there's a couple times in American history that that actually happens. Um, obviously, during um, slavery, you only could live where you could live. Um, and even after the uh, Reconstruction, um, there were laws that had begun to come in to control where black people live. But after World War II is when uh, the redlining was really taken up another notch. Um, and when blacks had the great migration out of the South into the big cities of the West and the North and the Northeast, um, you know, the, the access to certain food products was actually so limited. We, as we talk about on our slave food project talks, we were the first people to take up, start eating uh, Chinese food and Italian food. And we had to cook differently because the places we were forced to live in didn't have adequate kitchens. So quickly frying foods and things were was far more important. Um, and by restricting where we lived, you know, you could make it so that we only had certain choices as to what we eat, corner stores, bodegas. And eventually, after Richard Nixon um, started the Small Business Association loans, uh, which caused fast food restaurants with higher profit margins to pour into our into those red line neighborhoods, they really were able to feed us this food. And um, the redlining is a deep concept because we weren't just redlined in, this, in, in a geographical sense. We were redlined even in how people advertise food products to us. If you look at black programming, black programming actually gets different advertisement than all other, pro- than all other programming. Our magazines had menthol cigarettes and malt liquor. Nobody else had that. 
Our billboards in our neighborhoods had that. And even our TV shows and radio stations uh, advertised food and food products other people didn't have access to. So we were cornered in a lot of ways into a bad lifestyle because we were viewed as two things. One, dispensable on the one hand, you, could, you know, we could, you could be thrown away, but we were also looked as a good source of revenue. So companies could uh, use low moral standards in how they uh, fed us, entertained us, advertised to us, and addicted us, and no one would say a word. Well, I love the connection between the advertising because that really brings us to present day and it definitely ties into people profiting off of the, the, the death and the chronic conditions in the Black community. Jacita, did you have? Yes. So just to reset the room, we're talking about the trajectory of literal slave food, meaning things that the African people that were brought to America through the transatlantic slave trade were fed into soul food and the state of the black diet today. And after each section, we'll open the floor up for a few questions from the audience. So I just have a few questions. One of them is, how is the black diet? And I say that in quotes because there there really is no monolithic or general black diet because we come from so many different places. But for the purpose of this conversation, how is the black diet different from diets culturally consumed in the African countries that our ancestors were abducted from? And any, anyone can um, take that. I can go in on and then y'all, if y'all want to, or Milton, did you want to say something first? Uh, excuse me. Yes, I did. Um, I just wanted to point out that traditional West African diets and I'm, uh, um, uh, targeting West Africa because that's where the slaves were taken from are diets that were primarily plant-based diets. They were built around legumes, grains, whole grains, green leafy vegetables, no dairy, um, and limited amounts of animal tissue that were primarily consumed on holidays and feast days. And so they were a largely low-fat, nutrient-dense, energy-dilute plant-based diet that we know that when people revert to that type of diet, they um, um, remain uh, healthy or recover their health. When we look at West Africans uh, who have the same gene pool as us, who are eating that way and compare them to blacks living in uh, uh, Western countries, they don't have nearly the rates of uh, heart disease, colon cancer, uh, diabetes that we see in Western countries. So clearly we have uh, a physiology that is adapted for a largely plant-based diet. Great points. Um, I'll just add that, I mean, some of the countries that that slaves would have come from, places like Angola, Senegal, um, and also in Central Africa, Congo, the DRC, I know more about the West African countries because I'm West African, but, you know, um, things like greens are a big staple, um, uh, a lot of resistant starch, a lot of like tubers, cassava, all of those kinds of things, sweet potato, the beans, the peas, the whole grains, um, and if there were going to be if there were going to be meat, as, as Milton was talking about, it would be more like seafood or um, poultry, but in really small amounts. Um, things like okra, and then of course all of the herbs and superfoods, which I'm really into. Things like baobab, moringa, etc. These are things that were used primarily um, um, in West Africa. You know, I wanted to chime in real quickly if I could, um, just to kind of tie back in really how we got here. 
because when we look at the state of affairs uh, post-slavery and we see the migration, we see the GI Bill that really was enacted, we saw the disproportionate of mortgages that were, were given out to people of color. Uh, it's somewhere near along the lines I've seen in some reports of 70,000 compared to less than 100 for non-whites and new mortgages, that we saw that, that uh, highways were used to dissect out and carve out areas that would restrict migration, that there were others, a federal housing administration made statements like incompatible racial groups should not be permitted to live in the same communities. And so that you have these communities that were segregated essentially by 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 de jure right it wasn't it wasn't something that just happened by fact or by chance and so when these things happened and it limited access that was there we created these microcosms in which people were bound to that they were limited to on top of other stressors that we bring out in the slave food stressors of discrimination stressors of of inequities in terms of of finances and all these things now becoming essentially enslaved to the government for WIC and for SNAP, where a lot of those things, as I think Eric brought up earlier, are subsidized by the government, and that many of the foods that are purchased through WIC and SNAP, oftentimes in port, previously reported, are oftentimes on these highly processed, refined foods, essentially enslaving us continually. So when we look at modern day in, in terms of our, our dietary intake right now, as we hit into the whole civil rights era, we began to go ahead and embrace who we are as people. And we and we began to embrace this food, this heritage in which we made something out of nothing. But there's one point that I think is important that we bring up here, that slaves also augmented their diet by growing. They tended their farms before they had to go out in the fields. They grew vegetables. And in some instances, were able to go out and sell those things. And they were able to augment they were able to carry over some of the, 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 the remnants from West Africa that were brought up in creating many of these foods that have now taken hold inside of our, our culture now. So there are many forms of resiliency from West African heritage that are integrated inside of our culture and our food rather right now that we have to recognize. But there are things that we need to cast off, these remnants from that slave era that we absolutely have to cast off. Thank y'all. So given all that you, you've just said, you know, some people might be, be thinking, so what? I mean, it's, it's 2021. That was, you know, I've, I've never even been to anywhere in Africa. So, so why does it matter what my ancestors ate? So my question is, what is important about eating the types of food your ancestors ate? Why, why does it matter? Uh, can I say something? Oh, Go to an emergency room and look at the people who are sitting there with uh, uh, infected limbs and uh, out-of-control diabetes, with uh, their third and fourth heart attacks, with strokes, um, with renal failure. Uh, that will make it clear why getting back to a healthier diet that is more uh, in tune with our uh, native physiology is important. Because other this garbage that we were taught to eat is killing us. It is destroying our lives and our health. And, you know, I did a uh, program a couple weeks ago with uh, a local uh, activist here in uh, the metro area uh, that we called um, uh, Black Lives Can't Matter Until Black Health Matters. Mm -hmm. And that's the bottom line, that if, you know, 
we are sick and falling apart and, uh, you know, losing our limbs and, 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 and on dialysis uh, um, because, you know, of, of the, the things that we're eating, that is not, that is a horrible quality of life. And it also precludes um, and limits our ability to actually um, move our family into different socioeconomic circumstances and to even reach our potential uh, as individuals. And let me jump in and say there's two other things. Um, I'll take a little bit of a spiritual slant. Um, in, the, in one of my favorite Bible stories is in the book of Daniel. And every year, many of our churches across the country to do a Daniel fast. And when you look at the Daniel fast, what happened when Daniel was a slave in Babylon, Daniel said, I will not eat of the king's meat nor drink of his wine. In other words, I'm not going to assume the cuisine of of those who have um, enslaved me, Ooh. because Daniel understood he had to stay remain liberated in his mind. And at the time when we are crying for freedom and liberation, I find it ironic that we still go and eat at Babylon's table. Um, and so you're eating at Babylon's table, asking Babylon for freedom, um, and you wonder why we don't get there. And it is because the second level of this is how we eat and how we live affects our mental clarity, mm. affects how we think. Um, also affects us spiritually in the way we connect to our higher power, whatever your higher power is. Um, all of that actually matters in, in how you eat. So when you look at what happens to us as black people, literally diet is, uh, is like an extra chain. And, and clearly, as Milton said, it is a physical chain of disease, but it is, there's an untold level of anxiety, depression, doubt, despair that comes from a poor diet. Um, and so, you know, when we look at this, why does it matter today? Because liberation still matters today. And, you know, on the flip side of slave food for us is liberation nutrition. And um, that's the mindset we have to have. We want to be free. We can't just be free um, in the streets and at work. We also have to be free in our kitchens. That's yeah. so good. Yes. yes. I and I want to, I wanna, before you answer, Dr. Batiste, I just want to throw in a statistic that recently came out from the National Center for Health Statistics. Since the pandemic, um, life expectancy for all Americans has dropped by a year. But for Black Americans, specifically Black men, life expectancy dropped by almost three years. And they're comparing it now to the life expectancy that was back during World War II. Yeah, it's it's listen, it's it's an epidemic that continually rages inside of communities of color. And one of the things that we see, and you ask the question, why is it that someone should worry about that stuff a long time ago? Because oftentimes you hear people say, listen, this is my culture. This is who I am. Well, who you are is a series of assimilations, cultural assimilations. You we had to assimilate in slavery, we then assimilated during the Great Migration and then into these crucibles of conflict that we now reside in from stressors all around, including nutritional stress. And so one of the things that we have to look at is that we have a bigger heritage. You actually are descendant of, of great heritage. When we look around the world, even go outside of African-American community to the blue zones just in general, the most long-lived individuals around the world, they are centered in a plant-predominant diet. And so as you've already heard here today, the foods inside of Western Africa and in Africa that we're now holding and calling superfoods, filled in rich in phytonutrients, rich in all the minerals that we need in zinc and quercetin and, and all these different minerals that we're finding in, in order to, to, to fight disease. 
these are the foods that we should be eating, not fake foods that are having to be, that are taking the fiber and the nutrients out of it. They're then going ahead and they're injecting it with chemicals and, and trying to put minerals back into it so it has shelf life. That now we're taking in on a daily basis and we're wondering why we're diseased, why we're sick, why we're having all these things happen at an earlier and earlier age. Listen, I just found out today that my cousin passed away at the age of 71, right? Now, this poor man had been through the ringer, dialysis, transplant, eye issues, diabetes, just ravaging his body, living sicker for year after year after year and dying sooner. That's why this has to stop. That's why this is a passion for all of us who are on this panel today, all of us who are joining in. It's not just a black thing. This is an American thing. We lose billions of dollars every single year due to the health disparities. We lose, we lose out on, on issues in terms of getting our income at the end of our, when we are in retirement because we die soon. So now we don't get the retirement. We don't get the social security. So there is this huge degradation of the family unit comes from multiple angles and nutrition is a component of that. I just want to add um, before we take some questions that I loved everything. I love everything you guys were talking about and liberation, nutrition. Um, from my perspective, you know, when I see any client, I go through their entire health history from birth until when I'm looking at them in my office and their family health history is super important. So beyond just like eating like your ancestors, if you see that your your mama, your grandmama, your auntie, they all got diabetes, they all got hypertension, then you should really pay attention to what they were eating and not do that. And this is why I'm really interested in nutrigenomics because I really feel like we could save a lot of lives by getting enough data on people and teaching them how to design a lifestyle that does not allow them to live into the diseases of their grandmama, the grandfather, and everybody else in their in their family. Uh, can I just throw out one more quick point? Uh, and to what you were saying, so that's the line. The reason diseases run in families is because eating habits run in families. But the the other fundamental point that I think we need to step back and look at is this Western European dynamic of the belief that if, in order for something to be pleasurable, it has to be destructive, either self-destructive or destructive to the environment, destructive to other animals, that pleasure is derived by harming yourself or the uh, environment around you. And that is a really perverse way of thinking, and it does not need to be that way. We can derive pleasure from things that actually make us healthy, affirm our lives, make the world a better place. It doesn't have to be destructive. When it comes to racial health disparities and what creates them, what systems or laws would you say are the most uh, important to look at right now that the U.S. government is contributing to food deserts and to these um, inequities that we um, all observe? So I'll jump in and say we, one, of the, one of the things we touch on in our talks is that, um, you know, the, if you look at what the... The, the, um, the nutritional recommendations the federal government gives out are, and you compare those to what the government actually subsidizes in food, it is a stark contrast. They don't match up. The government subsidizes very different foods, and there are other studies that show the foods that the government subsidizes um, uh, increase your risk of disease. So um, 
it's a weird uh, hypocrisy almost in how the government tells us to eat, but what the actual government spends money not only to raise mass crops of often genetically modified foods, the dairy industry, meat industry, to support all those industries. Um, then on top of that, to go back to advertising, we actually work to try and get us to eat more things like cheese and and so forth. It's a crazy a cycle of things that happens. So we have an inconsistent message. And in fact, it's worse than an inconsistent message because where the money goes actually promotes disease. Um, and that's, you know, for those, some people want to really argue for like a universal healthcare system. We were, we had a, 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 a lifestyle physician on from England um, on our show last weekend. And it's one of the things that we talked about is that in England, the, the government has, and in Europe, in Canada, they have a vested interest in people being healthy because the government also foots the health care bill. So they, they often are going to take a different approach and are going to be a little more conservative around um, what's advertised and what's offered. And it's not perfect, but that's one of the things. So we have that as a first layer. There's a lot more, but I'll wait and see what everybody else wants to say. Maybe I'll jump back on after. Um, I, I'd like to add something to that because... Uh, when you look historically at how this country has dealt with communities of color, they have deliberately taken these uh, ethnic groups from places where they had food security, put them into a situation where there was food insecurity with the Native Americans. They did it by chain, uh, driving them off their land, putting them on these marginal agricultural lands called reservations and uh, imprisoning them there. And that then made them dependent on government on the government for um, uh, food resources and then the government basically pimped them by using them as dumping ground for the agricultural ag process excess that was produced by farmers so they you know they processed the uh, wheat into white flour the uh, milk into cheese uh, you know sugar all of this uh, and it creates excess disease. They did it with uh, blacks first by imprisoning us on slave labor camps called plantations, then by doing it with the red money you spoke of earlier, confining us to inner city areas uh, that, again, uh, put us in such a uh, poor social and uh, economic position. We're dependent on, on uh, the government subsidies and handouts. And what do they feed us? The agricultural castoffs and excess made by agribusiness so that people make money off of us and they don't give a whit about our health. Although I do think that, as I said earlier, the illness is part of the point. And uh, they, they do it with um, uh, Latinx slash Hispanic uh, uh, Americans uh, and uh, individuals by deliberately trying to keep them in a uh, status of not being documented uh, uh, so that they are living this tenuous in-between existence. And again, uh, economically, they end up dependent on these government handouts. So um, that 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 actually is a recurring pattern that we've seen in the history of this country. Just to add to it, in terms of what's leading to our health disparities, I mean, I think one of the things Tony Eitan brought this up, we had them on our show, and talking about zip codes matter. And zip codes matter in terms of the length of years one lives, but it's even deeper beyond that. So we look at there's a maternal health disparities that are there. We, know, we recognize that, understand that. We know that there are educational disparities that are there, whether or not I live within a section of town that's just a matter of, of half a mile away. That may result in dramatically different type of educational opportunities as well as subsequent opportunities beyond that. We know that education and poverty plays a big role in terms of 
a person's uh, health and their health outcomes and in their job acquisition. We know that there is still a huge um, income gap way, uh, difference inside the African-American community that's growing. And it's not an issue that those in the Hispanic and Caucasian communities is growing exponentially, but we're saying that African-Americans are stagnant, are not being able to, to be paid the same amount of money. So we're looking at multiple levels, all these factors that then come into play that your frontline workers, and this became exposed in 2020 with the COVID virus, that we're seeing too as well that individuals, their food choices that we've already discussed extensively here already, that my access to food choices that now I'm brand recognition. I get this food subsidized for me in school, where now I have these big food companies coming in and giving poor quality nutrition to me at a young age, that now I'm, I'm bound to this mentally and psychologically as I get older and all around me as it's easier for me to buy five burgers for a dollar because the, the, our, our money goes where. Eric says it beautifully. He says what? Resources go where value is placed. And so government clearly has placed value in certain things, which is the business of business. And that's led to the detrimental health outcome. Our, our business is health. And our business of health is why we're in this about talking about trying to make a difference. So there's multiple layers. A central cog is nutrition, but there we can't be confused. There are multiple layers that come into this issue of health disparities. So I'm just going to because you all touched on a lot of the you know the prevalence of junk food and alcohol in low income neighborhoods, redlining, and this whole concept of food as chains. I got that from watching the slave food um, slave food project webinar and you, you mentioned a lot food has changed so I'm just gonna throw out some numbers and you can comment you can comment on them um, if you like but it just to sum up everything you guys are saying so why the, the the food guidelines why they matter is because a lot of them are used to create meal plans in these like government funded programs school lunches and things like that. So just for those who don't know, the food guidelines, they come out every five years. So in the last cycle, the American Beverage Association, which is the lobbying group for brands like Coca-Cola and Pepsi, they spent a combined $23.8 million lobbying the USDA. And then in 2018, or since the beginning of 2018, um, they spent $1.68 million and Red Bull spent $320,000. And that's 2018. So we're now in 2020. I'm sure more money has been contributed. Another one is um, the meat industries. So the, the National Chicken Council, the National Pork Producers Council, the Texas Cattle Feeders Association, those groups collectively spent $4.5 million lobbying Congress on issues, including the dietary guidelines. Um, and then the new thing about the food guidelines this year is now they're making recommendations um, for infants. And um, even though we know breastfeeding is best, of course, the, the big player there is Nestle because they make formula. And they've spent, since 2018, $1.58 million lobbying the USDA. So I just wanted to throw those out there to give some context to the conversation, put some numbers out there. Um, and you guys can comment on that if you like. Um, if anyone has anything they want to add to that, if not, I'll move to the next question. I would only say that those numbers really support the idea that um, when people talk about free markets in this country, which is a big talking point at times, the markets aren't that free. In fact, 
um, you have to pay to play inside a lot of these markets. And that changes a lot of things because um, then, um, as, as I think the Columbus said earlier, one of our guests said earlier this year, the business of business is business. So, you know, you could be, I guess you could argue the intentionality of a lot of these efforts in terms of disease uh, uh, producing in, in people, um, not just black people or brown people. I think you have to be, we all have to be honest that there's, besides racism in this country, there's classism. And a lot of poor white people actually suffer the very same fate. And that goes back to slavery. When white, poor whites didn't have land, they were um, had significant nutritional deficiencies that caused diseases across um, the, 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 the whole um, population of poor whites. In fact, in Joel Furman's book, Fast Food Genocide, he believes that some of these nutritional deficiencies may have, or he makes the argument that some of these nutritional deficiencies may have contributed to the violent behavior against blacks that some of the poor whites actually had. Wow. I can't say I'm, 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 you know, I can't say for or against that that's true, but it's also there's also classism, and when big rich corporations are able to manipulate systems, the people with the least voice and the people with the least um, social and political power are going to suffer the most. Um, people tend to gravitate towards power, um, and as and as uh, Machiavelli said, power corrupts. Absolute power corrupts absolutely. And what these people are trying to buy, in a sense, is financial absolute power. And somebody then has to suffer. Somebody has to, because these products, you can't make the product straight. There's really not much money um, to be made in, a, in, you know, in healthy foods, um, you know, uh, a lot of times. There's money in making foods addictive. Um, being able to say, bet you can't eat just one. Being able to say, once you pop, you can't stop. The tobacco industry was sued. Because they said, no, our products aren't addictive and they don't cause disease. And they were lying. The food industry doesn't even hide it. They tell you right up front, as McDonald's Great Billboard says, um, crafted for your cravings. Uh, so <laughs> this is no longer free markets. Um, this is something different. Um, and that's why it causes diseases all across the United States and disproportionately for people of African descent. I was just going to, um, the, the statistic or the thing you brought up, um, Shasita, about Nestle, I find that really disturbing. Um, like when I work with clients, I'm always looking at what I ask them, were they breastfed or not breastfed and stuff like that? Because, um, and you know, every woman does what they can when they're pregnant, but the fact that we could start skewing uh, recommendations for infants towards formula, a lot of African-American clients that I have end up with gastrointestinal issues and other really serious hormonal imbalances and stuff their entire life from the early consumption of dairy products. So I find that very disturbing. Can I throw uh, an, uh, a point out here that I think we also have to uh, consider? And, it ha and it, it's related to the fact that, as uh, Eric was saying, these uh, fast foods, junk foods are deliberately crafted to be addictive. And the question is, what makes them addictive? What makes them addictive is that they are concentrated sources of salt, fat, sugar, and so forth. And when these things are ingested, they cause a dopamine hit, which is the pleasure hormone in the brain, and people derive pleasure from them. The reason these things are particularly uh may or maybe particularly seductive and destructive in our community is because black people living in america are living with chronic ptsd 
That has been documented um, uh, in, in research studies uh, about the elevated less levels of stress hormones and so forth. And so there is a natural tendency to gravitate towards things that are easy uh, 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 mm -hmm. ways to get some kind of pleasure. And these cheap, unhealthy, destructive foods is one of the main ways that people self-medicate for the stress that they're constantly under. That you are just you are dipping into our next couple of yeah. questions, Dr. Mills. So we'll 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 ask them in a we'll like set them up because I do want to want to talk about this and also just to, to your point, Eric. Right uh, in the in the LA Times article that I wrote about the new guidelines, um, one of the scientists uh, from the Union of Concerned Scientists she kind of joked with me and she said, "Well, you don't see like the broccoli growers lobbying Congress, right? Like." You don't see uh, spinach lobbying Congress because you don't you don't need to. It's just it's funny you you see these other industries lobbying Congress to to kind of sway what gets recommended and what doesn't get recommended. Even the foods that they know are unhealthy, that money will kind of change opinions. And some I also want to put out there one way that people can be more in control of this is all of this information is free. And it's open. If you go to opensecrets.gov, you can see how much money every industry is spending um, lobbying Congress. And you can also see which congressmen are taking how much money from which industry players and which lobbyist groups. So when you vote for your Congress members, look up who they're taking money from and, 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 and be more informed when you vote. So I just want to put that out there. Um, but now we're going to get into the we're going to talk about stress. Um, so I don't know if so, so if you wanted to kick that off or do we just want to start with how stress and um, self-esteem correlate to diet and poor health? Yeah, I think we I think we can. I mean, Dr. Mills kind of started it off. I think when you were talking about people self-medicating, it really ties into um, things that I've heard um, Dr. Walsh and Dr. Batiste talk about when they talk about racism as a unique stressor. Can you guys elaborate on that? I'll let uh, Columbus, if you want to go first, you can. Um, but I, I, stress is one of the things that we focus on a lot. In fact, my, my dissertation uh, for my doctorate in public health was around key stress, one of the key things that I, I looked at. And one, of the, uh, one thing that we know is a stressor that causes disease is low self-esteem. Um, and so low self-esteem in, in, in our society um, is ubiquitous. I mean, it, 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 it goes into every race and every kind of people, but uniquely again, um, when, when you're raised um, that European features and European looks and European, um, you know, uh, families are, 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 are the, are the um, epitome of beauty or the epitome of uh, civility, um, and you're not that. I, I, I say in our talks all the time, I had one relative um, say to me once, uh, someone who had married into the family, say to me once, um, you'd be so handsome if you weren't so dark. And, um, you know, that kind of stuff actually, uh, you know, Milton said something about PTSD. That kind of stuff gives you PTSD because after that you look in the mirror and you're like, man, am I too dark? I wish I wasn't so dark. And this is unique to black people. Our, the, the, the shapes of our noses, lips, even our bodies, the, the, the texture of our hair, all of that can be called into question. And every time you look at yourself, it can be a little chip of stress. When you're stressed, what happens is the stress hormone that's released is cortisol. 
And when cortisol is released, it, you, it triggers you to go into a constant state of fight or flight, which makes your liver make sugar, makes your pancreas make insulin. It makes blood go away from your digestive tract to your big muscles, increases your blood pressure. So it sets you up for all kinds of diseases. It makes it easier for you to form atherosclerotic plaques in your arteries of your neck and around your heart. So that it sets you up for disease in a way that I don't know most people can re really uh, understand. You're not designed to live in a constant state of fight or flight. And so when you're in a constant state of fight or flight, just as Dr. Uh, Mil uh, Milton said, one of the things that happens is comfort foods feel better. When you eat something that's a mix of sugar and fat and you have high cortisol levels, it blunts the release of cortisol temporarily and you get like a reprieve from the stress, or, um, from feeling stressed. This is why in our talks, uh, Dr. Batiste does a great job. Columbus does a great job saying uh, the stress equals desserts spelled backwards. Um, so when you're stressed, this is what happens. So you're more likely to eat these foods. So if you flood a neighborhood with these foods, and let me always step back and point out, our neighbors weren't just flooded with bad food. They were flooded with menthol cigarettes. They were flooded with malt liquor. They were flooded with crack. All of these things were intentionally allowed to come into or legally brought into our neighborhoods in the, in, in the terms of alcohol and cigarettes. So these things have had a negative impact generationally on our people. I'll say one more thing because I used to be a, a strong, uh, I used to spend a lot of my time doing a lot of breastfeeding advocacy. Um, one of the things that happens is when a woman is stressed is that she releases cortisol, releasing hormone, as well as cortisol. When this gets into the uterus, it crosses um, the placenta and the fetus actually gets it. And what happens is when that woman is stressed, the fetus also is stressed. And in order to prepare for a stressful post-uterine environment, the fetus begins to lay down more adipose tissue, meaning it actually has more fat cells by number than if the mother was not stressed. Mm -hmm. I want to challenge, I, I, you know, I would, I, you know, I would love to see broader studies done on this, but I believe that the stressors that women of color in this country face literally begin to change through a process called epigenetics, change that the, the, the feet, unborn fetus to, a, to, a, to, to be more prone to disease. And I believe even maybe more prone to some of these comfort foods that are given out. One of the ways to protect against that is to breastfeed. But isn't it ironic? Instead of promoting breastfeeding, the government has actually been involved for many years, and now it's changed a bit. But and actually trying to get you to to, to give the, that young child um, a formula, another fake food, another food-like substance. Um, it is great if there's no breast milk available, clearly. But um, not pushing breastfeeding and and the way that it has been uh, depicted, as I believe. Account caused countless um, uh, a, a amount of morbidity and mortality um, in many people in this country. I just want to add, because yes. you were talking about women and stress, and I deal with so many women who have um, fibroids, endometriosis, PCOS, all kinds of hormonal imbalances, but primarily they have estrogen dominance. And what I see is, of course, diet plays a huge role. But then, and you know, and especially the consumption of dairy um, and animal products, but mostly dairy. But the other thing that I see is that for Black women, because we're stressed on so many fronts, we have racism stress, we have family stress, we have work stress, we have all those things. Women start to process their stress inefficiently, um, and and because progesterone is a precursor to cortisol, 
we literally start leaching our progesterone to make more cortisol, keeping us in fight or flight, and we end up with more and more estrogen dominance. And this is a huge problem. And this is why when I, whenever we have to deal with someone who has these hormonal imbalances, we have to deal with it holistically, and it's dealing with the root causes of the stress. But some of this stress is coming from racism, and it's, it's not necessarily something that can be wished away. It just has to be dealt with through daily mindfulness, prayer, and all kinds of other practices to keep people calm. Yes, yes, yes. You know, just to add to it a bit there, you know, there's some people out there who may say, well, I haven't experienced racism, you know, and David Williams out of Harvard did a great deal of work in this, this arena here in creating what's called the everyday discrimination scale, just very simple things. And we always use in our talk, the example of Oprah Winfrey going and trying to purchase the purse and being told that she couldn't afford it. Right. And so Eric alluded to it, but it's things like, you know, are you ever treated with less courtesy, less respect, you know, uh, felt to be dishonest, you're not as smart, things of that nature, all these forms of microaggression that can be deemed as microracial aggressions that are there, that erode at us. And so as a result, we've already spoken about the epigenetic play with it. But even going back to like the, the mother child bond, we know that what's released is the big, the great antidote to stress that cortisol is oxytocin, right? That's also released during that time that allows that tend to befriend. And so by, by eliminating this breastfeeding, you're actually eliminating the ability of the oxytocin, which has reparative effects on the heart. That has the ability to, to help stabilize the lining of the vessel, that same lining of the vessels that has been hypothesized as an entry point for the COVID virus. We know there's huge plays uh, there too as well. We know that as the as a result of the multitude of racial discrimination studies have shown the increased nature of breast cancer inside women who describe breast who describe racial discrimination. That we see as a result of racial discrimination, we see carotid artery stenosis, we see coronary artery calcification. And here's the thing: black women do oftentimes show, uh, shoulder a burden that's even greater than, than everyone. And so they carry this superwoman complex. And we know studies are showing that, that telomeres, those ends of the DNA that really bind things together and predict your longevity, shorten inside of individuals who have racial who have report discrimination. It's so powerful that there was a study, and we had a guest on who brought this, this research to our attention, that 14-year-olds who had tremendous amount of stress, tremendous amount of discrimination, had telomeres that were shorter than midlife Caucasian women with breast cancer. Uh, horrible. American boys, yeah. Yeah, but, but here's the power, is that once you started going ahead and allowing them to show nurturing and bonding and doing things to kind of make them feel wanted, all of a sudden, those telomeres can grow. They can extend, and these have been demonstrated in studies. So racial discrimination is real in terms of its ill effects on our health. It's powerful. Uh, I just want to toss out that there, I, there, there already have been studies looking at the impact of um, racially uh, uh, ins uh, insensitive uh, um, events on women who are pregnant. And it has been documented that racial discrimination uh, encountered uh, during pregnancy will cause women to have low birth weight babies and perhaps even go into preterm labor. Uh, moreover, there is some suggestion that if the mother is under a chronic state of really severe um, racial animus, that it will alter the 
uh, neurochemistry of her child as it develops. So this is no joke. Wow. I mean, this is very, very real. But um, as Columbus alluded to, for people of color, racism is a fact of life if you don't live in America. So, but we can come up with coping strategies and, and, and uh, mechanisms to deal with this. We just have to, number one, acknowledge it exists and, um, and take steps to ameliorate it um, that don't involve uh, ingesting uh, uh, unhealthy foods or adopting nihilistic um, lifestyle behaviors that ultimately help shorten our lives. All right. We are going to take a short break. And when we get back, we'll dive right back into the amazing discussion we had on Clubhouse. Attention, superfood lovers. You all may know by now that my favorite African superfood of all time is Moringa. Why? Moringa has 92 nutrients and 46 antioxidants, and every part of the amazing plant can be used. I personally use Moringa oil on my face twice a day, and then I also use Moringa powder to add to my smoothies, make Moringa bread, or sprinkle on meals for added nutrition from an amazing company called True Moringa. Founded in 2013, True Moringa is creating jobs and community with their amazing skincare and wellness products. The coolest part? Every time you make a purchase from True Moringa, they plant a tree in your name. Yes, child, to date they have planted over 2 million Moringa trees to combat deforestation and malnutrition in Ghana. To check out their awesome products, visit TrueMoringa.com and use the code RAWGIRL at checkout for 10% off and free shipping over $20. Are you interested in living your best, healthiest life? I'm Asosa E, also known as The Raw Girl of TheRawGirl.com, and I'm a certified nutrition specialist and behavioral coach who specializes in helping you discover what exercise and diet is best for your body and get to the root cause and rebalance if you have a serious chronic condition. Clients who've worked with me have reversed diabetes, hypertension, balanced hormonally, gotten rid of acne for good, and lost hundreds of pounds. If you are interested in reaching your health goals with some support this year, visit therawgirl.com to sign up for a 20-minute call with yours truly. Until then, stay healthy and happy. So what I want to do now is move to our final kind of question, our final questions and then open it up to uh some last questions from the audience it's basically the conversation you guys were already delving into is what where do we go from here like what are the solutions to the problem that we've been discussing this whole conversation beyond changing the dietary guidelines um what are some things people can do like is there a general guide that African-Americans can use to kind of level up their diets. Um, and I guess I'll, I'll get to that question by asking this. If you had to tell someone, because we all know when, when people try to change their diet, it's a fight because you feel like you're losing so much. You're losing your comfort foods. You're, you're losing after that long, stressful day of being kind of beat up by the world. Maybe you want to go home and you want to get like, a cheeseburger or, you know, people are turning to those foods for comfort. You're getting your cup of coffee. If you had to tell someone 
who is African-American to change or eliminate one thing from their diet to improve their health, what would it be? I'll chime in first real quickly. Um, I try and focus on, on getting folks to add to their diet as opposed to subtract. Um, so uh, the first thing is I do is I try and make sure I tap into the positive aspect of a person's mental, mental outlook instead of a negative. When you tell a person they can't have something, they're driven to have it more. We had a guest on recently from across the Atlantic, uh, Dr. Chidi, and he mentioned uh, his technique of waiting 30 minutes. Have whatever it is you want, but just wait 30 minutes and you eat something healthy in, in, uh, while you're waiting. Right? So you're never telling yourself, no, you're waiting. And so I focus on adding. But being very intentional when you're adding. Don't just say, okay, I'm going to add some healthy vegetables. Don't be very specific. I don't like spinach, so okay, I'm going to have green leafy lettuce, or I'm going to have kale, or I'm going to have collards, or I'm going to have broccoli, whatever it is. Being very specific. Not just saying the kind, but then now I'm going to say what, how much. And something that's actually actionable, right, That that's, that I can actually, I have access to. That's also important. And I think once you start to make it less scary for people, less where it's intrusive, but saying, okay, you know what? I'm going to add to my diet. It really depends on meeting people where they're at. Some people are going to be ready to go to dive all in. Others are going to be, like you said, very hesitant. But if I can get them to begin, studies have shown, Evans Health Studies showed this with Omelette. As you begin to move from eating any and everything down to a completely whole food plant-based diet, you see improvement. There's gradations. It's not an all or none phenomenon. And so there is power in the slow, steady, atomic habit approach towards it. And I think that that is an initial start, but it's not the end. You have to still keep your eye on the goal is a marathon, 26.2 miles. Your goal is to transition completely, but you may start slow, but understanding that there's a long road ahead of you. Um, let me let me throw in a slightly different approach. Um, and... One, I start off by trying to, uh, uh, with, with black people, it's usually easy because most of them believe in God. And so I just point out, look, God designed you, he told you to be plant-based now. That's like, you know, your mother always told you to, you know, do X, Y, and Z. That doesn't mean you always do it. So I know that that in and of itself doesn't guarantee that somebody's going to change your diet, but it at least gives them the rationale. That you know, you're, again, and I can back it up with these uh, this other information on why uh, you know how our bodies are not designed to eat this food. But then, if they if I have somebody who has a disease, yeah. um, what I do is give them a defined period of time. I tell them I want you to go plant based for you know six weeks, eight weeks, depending on what I think they will tolerate, because I know that if I can get them to do that, that before they're even at the halfway point, they're going to be feeling so much better and doing so much better that the behavior will become self-reinforcing. But in order for that to work, you have to be make sure that the person has, you know, appropriate uh, support resources for uh, getting good, healthy food, that they have maybe some cookbooks and know how to, 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 to uh, uh, prepare uh, healthy food and, and to make sure the food is uh, delicious because nobody wants to live on granola and celery sticks period so that that's an another option i'm with uh, milton on that on that option i'm a little bit more aggressive and especially if someone has a condition that i know they can benefit from removing something i will have them remove it but i will also kind of tie in dr batista's perspective in the sense that i do believe that 
if someone has a comfort food, sometimes they can still have that comfort food with different ingredients. And sometimes it's just opening your mind to realize, hey, I don't have to eat this thing with, you know, dairy milk in it. I can have it with almond milk. And it's just sometimes just uh, giving that option becomes a little bit more of a bridge and, and people can um, um, find their way to figuring out that, oh my goodness, I can actually eat this and it's actually not bad. It actually tastes pretty good and they start to get used to it. But I don't, I try not to beat around the bush if someone has a serious um, issue at hand. And I'll chime back in. I actually agree with both of you. And so I do both. But if I'm an average person, Joe, on the street, and it's how can I make them to get one change, I will try and get them just to tempt them and get them going with a small habit. But I think it's very easy as a healthcare provider to give a person a prescribed period of time because we do all the time in terms of medications. Let's give you this statin. Let's give you this inhaler. Let's give you this beta blocker. And then we'll have you back and we'll see how you're doing with your blood pressure, your cholesterol, or your breathing. And so that's very easy. And patients really, it resonates with patients that this is a therapy, a therapeutic approach through nutrition. And that's something I found to be beneficial inside the clinical setting. In a community setting, for me, I found it to be slightly different um, and a lot more um, uh, hesitance on the part of patients. But I think any approach to get them going is great. Well, and Columbus, I mean, you know, you're right. You have to tailor the approach to the patient. Um, or, or to the person you're talking to. And, um, you know, it's easier with sick people because they feel bad and they want to go better. And so it, in some ways it may be easier to get them to kind of go all in with the promise that they're going to feel a lot better. Although I still find that, you know, if you talk to someone, I need, I want you to change your diet. Man, that's a big mountain to climb. But if you tell someone, look, I want you to do this for the next eight weeks, if at the end of eight weeks, your numbers aren't better, you don't feel any better, you're not functioning better, go back to doing what you were doing. No harm, no foul. But I guarantee you, you'll be feeling better. That eight weeks gives them a an endpoint because they're thinking, they're trying to imagine something they've never experienced. And all they're thinking is, I'm going to be miserable because I ain't got no meat. Uh, but <laughs> they say, okay, I can try this for eight weeks to see if it's really going to work. Well, again, if this was saying, you make sure you veganize their comfort foods, uh, make them a little healthier so that they aren't leaving everything they know. Um, and they'll be able to make it through that eight weeks. And by you know, week four or five, they're going to be feeling like a billion bucks. Yeah, I love that. I just want to add one other thing because the other thing that I have to focus on sometimes is getting to the root cause of how people actually interact with food. I mean, we are programmed from young to either like, you know, eat sweet things when we have a great happy moment or we eat sweet things when we have a, <laughs> we eat like, you know, we're sitting there. We've all seen that movie trope of someone sitting there with a, you know, a, a carton of ice cream because someone broke up with them or whatever it is, something dramatic. And so sometimes I also have to support my clients in deprogramming and that gets deep sometimes. These subconscious um, connections they have to food and using it to self-medicate and that involves really actually doing the work of asking yourself when you're about to eat something, why am I eating this? Am I hungry? Am I bored? Am I upset? Did someone just stress me out? What's going on with me actually that's causing me to crave this food? I want, and I wanted to jump in because I think where uh, Sosa is going is really my approach. Um, you, there's a lot of things you can tell people to stop eating because there's just so much. The entire sad diet, standard American diet is full of things everything from sugar-sweetened beverages. I mean, if you want to get a lot of bang for your buck, 
you found someone that was drinking, you know, three or four Coca-Colas a day or Pepsis a day and you were able to get them to switch that to water, you get a lot of bang for your buck. Uh, animal fat, the saturated fat and animal fat is literally the trigger for diabetes. A lot of people think, it, you know, they focus on the sugar and forget that it's actually um, intramuscular fat that blocks the insulin receptor. So could you get people to stop eating animal fat, which would mean they basically, in some ways, have to stop eating meat and dairy. But the approach that we often talk about on the Slave Food Project is to start outside of the kitchen. Start where you can build resist resilience so that you can resist temptation. Um, and I think what Asosa said is that's literally the first thing I would start with is that some of us really do need some therapy. And it's um, not often, not always race-based. I mean, we talk a lot about um, the stresses of race in this country, but some of us, it was our, it was in a, in the home, in the family, um, you know, in a in a bad relationship or marriage. Um, sometimes you've got to work through some things because food is literally um, your medicine. I remember when I was working with um, former addicts when I was doing my addiction medicine rotations at the Veterans Hospital Loma Linda, California. One of the veterans they led a chant after one of the group meetings, and he said, "God made the human heart so big, only He can fill it." Um, and, I, and afterwards, I was like, what do you mean by that? And he said, you know, if you try and fill the God-sized hole in your heart with anything but God, you're going to become an, an addict to it. And obviously, this was part of their 12 steps and all of that and, and, and those types of things. But it, it resonated with me that, in fact, a lot of what we do, really, we're trying to fill a void that needs to be filled otherwise. And this is why I think what he's supposed to say is so critically important. Americans don't just eat bad because bad food is available. Americans eat bad because Americans feel bad. Uh, black people uh, eat bad sometimes because we feel bad. We want to feel better, and food can change your mood. So how do you build this resilience? You have, sometimes you have to start outside of the kitchen. Let that be – build your, your, your strength to go into the kitchen and fight. How do you do that? Well, therapy. Number two, sleep. The studies are overwhelming. If you are sleep deprived, you have less control over your appetite. The next day you're going to consume more calories the next day. Um, exercise, right? And so sometimes it's not, well, what do you take away? Add some exercise. If you can do, get to where you're doing 20, 30 minutes um, of um, cardiovascular exercise every day, it would help to change your mood more naturally, give you a little bit more um, strength to fight in the kitchen. You're never going to change, you know, you know, just doing that isn't going to drastically change your weight, but it might change your mind uh, because of how of the, some of the deeper reasons why you're eating what you're eating. And, and I would throw in there um, that this is also where spirituality comes in and being connected to something bigger than yourself um, and understanding your role and a desire to fulfill your purpose in this life, to be able to be an agent of change. Um, and this goes all the way back to our for the first part of our conversation. Um, if this, this the part, and, and Milton nailed it a couple of times, this, if, if you feed the slaves bad food, their sickness will keep them on the plantation. If we are going to really rise up and do what we are called to do and do what is needed to be done in our society and in this world, uh, we need to be the sharpest tools we possibly can be. Um, so th that spiritual component is also very important. Then you can go into the kitchen and begin to do things. And I do actually really like Columbus's approach. Um, I've found that if you tell people, listen, what I need you to do is to begin simply by eating an apple a half an hour before every meal. Studies are overwhelming. If you just do that, you actually cut the amount of calories, net calories you consume at the next meal. And if you add um, deep root foods um, that, that especially like our ancestors ate, you can actually cut the calories in the next meal and in the meal 
12, 16 hours later, because when those complex carbohydrates get to your um, colon and reach your uh, gut microbiome, actually begin to release um, healthy fatty acids into the bloodstream that tell your brain, we have fiber from the top of us to the bottom of us, we're full, we don't need to keep stuffing ourselves. That is one of the um, satiation signals that many of us are missing because we're not eating these wonderful uh, complex uh, uh, fibrous foods that we were designed to eat. So this, you have to literally develop a strategy, but you've got to remove um, the kinks in your armor first. So I, again, I want to end by highlighting what Asosa said, but sometimes really you do have to go back and figure out what am I medicating myself against or for. I really hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. Please follow me on Clubhouse at The Raw Girl for future Black Health Happy Hour conversations. We aim to do them the last Saturday of each month at around 7.30 p.m. Eastern, but you can check my Instagram or join my newsletter for updates in case we change the time. Well, that's all for today, sis. If you're looking for more health tips or have a question for the show, find me on Instagram at The Raw Girl. You can also find me and contact me through my website, therawgirl.com. For more on the show or to listen to past episodes, visit stayingagelessshow.com. To watch the podcast episodes on video, subscribe to my YouTube channel, youtube.com backslash The Raw Girl. 